This is the Anatomy of a Scream Pod Squad Network. Welcome back to Such Sights to Show, what was once a Hellraiser podcast and is now a All Things Clyde Barker and Adjacent Projects podcast. I'm Joe Lipset, and I'm joined as always by Mr. Brian Christopher. How you doing? Good, Joe. I think we missed our stop, though. Um, <laughs> oh, no. Are we on the wrong train? <laughs> I think we might be. <laughs> yes, folks, we are talking about the Midnight Meat Train, about the short story, as well as the 2008 or 2009 film, depending on when you want to consider the film's release date. And Mr. Brian, we talked a little bit about some of the other short stories in Books of Blood Volume 1, but we didn't really go in much on this short story. So what are your thoughts on it? I really like the short story. I like okay. the idea that it's it's not quite in media race, like a mm-hmm. you know, something where you're coming in the middle of it, but you're there's not a lot in terms of like introduction. You know, you're right. you get caught up very quickly on this character, Leon Kaufman, who's in New York City because uh he kind of always romanticized it as the quote unquote palace of delights. Right. And when he gets there he realizes the reality of it is very, very different. And <laughs> And so, like, that's the mentality we're bringing on to this late night subway uh, commute that he has. Um, You know, he has some kind of arbitrary office work job that keeps him there late. So he's on his way back. He's falling asleep. And when he wakes up, um, he just happens to be, like, in the wrong place at the wrong time uh, to see someone who we only know as the butcher, uh, Mm -hmm. who is – Applying his trade, which is to kill people on this late night subway car and literally butcher them um, and to start to kind of process them for reasons that become apparent at the end of the uh, at the end of the story. So I like the idea that they just kind of get into it, you know, and that it's. You know, there's this guy, he's in the city, he's not really digging it, and then, uh-oh, he's in a he's in a position he really finds himself doesn't want to be in. And so I, I like the idea of just these these two entities just kind of clashing with one another. Like there's something very raw and and like distilled about this story. You know, it cuts out a lot of the there's not a lot of fluff in this. It just kind of gets right into it. Yeah. And if you're thinking about Books of Blood, this is technically the first full-length story, right? We talked Mm -hmm. about um, the wraparound of the framing device that introduces the concept, but really this is the first full short story in the volume. And you're right. I think it does dispense of, you know, this isn't about the pleasantries. This is about just getting you right into the story. You could even do away a little bit with the backstory for Leon. But at the end of the story, it becomes more apparent why it's important that he has become disillusioned with the city, mostly because he needs to fall back in love with it when he gets this assignment from the fathers, like the sort of forefathers of the city of the US who are these disgusting creatures who live in a subterranean village and yes the train is delivering their food to them on a nightly basis yeah yeah there's something 
like the fact that they give you just enough of that, but they don't really get into like, how does that actually work in practice? Mm-hmm. You know, they, they make this big reveal, but it's more just to kind of leave that, that sense of, I don't know, like this is like a, a conspiracy theorist, like, you know, dream, you know, this is the, you finding out it's all, you know, there, there is that secret underground cabal right Uh, and in this case they're a bunch of old (laughs) decrepit you know ghouls basically you know and it does fit in like you said you know at at first you wonder why they're bothering with all that stuff about leon kind of being in love with the city uh or 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 being in love with the idea of the city and then kind of being disillusioned when he actually gets there and it kind of comes full circle at the end where when he kind of he's he's found his niche um, as mm-hmm. horrible as it is, and that's kind of made him fall in love truly with the city, uh, and that's warts and all, you know, ghoulish warts and all. So I, I just think it's very, um, it's a very efficient story, and it's a very right. brutal story, and it is. Um, it it hints at these bigger picture things without like it's not very long, uh, especially compared to some of the other stories in here uh, mm-hmm. in uh, in books of blood. It's just down and dirty and gritty. And um, I also kind of like the idea that the way they're described, both Leon and the Butcher are very unremarkable in their appearance, Mm -hmm. you know, which is something that was never going to carry over into a mainstream movie. You know, you're not going to have, you know, these kind of milquetoast looking, you know, maybe kind of pudgy, balding guys. You know, instead, you're going to get Bradley Cooper and Vinnie Jones, which I I think also works (laughs) in its own way. But, you know, I think there's something... There was something interesting about the fact that these seem to be both very unassuming looking guys that wind up in this very kind of brutal fight to the death um, mm-hmm. for for basically who's going to take over the mantle of, you know, being the the meat runners for this cabal of uh, ghouls that secretly run the city. Yeah, I mean, I love the idea that Leon thinks that he's doing a public service by trying to defeat this guy. I mean, he he ends up in over his head. It's not really by choice that he ends up having to become a bit of a hero. Mm -hmm. And I have seen some people describe this as a bit of a happy ending because he falls back in love with the city. He vanquishes the evil. And I'm just like... Oh, I I think you misread the story because <laughs> he's basically taken on this penance. Like Leon's entire life is now void. He will become the new butcher. This is now his entire existence, like serving these ghouls, delivering them meat on the daily. He is now the new butcher. That's not a happy thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, it's kind of like how it, I, I think, you know, it's a conversation that can be had. You know, to what degree is that a happy ending? What degree isn't? But I think it's similar to like at the end of Midsommar, you know, that the the, the ongoing debate about whether or not Florence Pugh's character, like, is that a right. an empowering yeah. happy ending or is that her, you know, kind of succumbing to this cult? Uh, can both of those things be true? Right. Here it's Leon has found his purpose. Right? Yeah. It's just a horrible, horrible purpose. Yeah. You know, and it's to what degree do we do those things that we know we kind of find distasteful because we think ultimately they are for like the greater good of the the community. Mm-hmm. I think this, like many horror stories and in particular Clive Barker, you know, he loves taking things to those extremes, you know, right. and, and, and doing it in a context where it's like, it's not like you're, you know, maybe buying into like, you know, capitalist meat production or something like that. No, you're <laughs> literally killing people on a train to feed creatures, you know, that, that live underneath the sewers. Um, yeah. so he's, he's taking those, those things 
which he's so good at doing, those things that cause us discomfort and just makes them like, you know, magnifies them by a thousand. Yeah, that and the fact that it's a story that seemingly starts small, right? Like it's a story of two different men who are, yeah, kind of unassuming, not spectacular in any way. They come into conflict with one another. But by the end of the short story, you understand that there's such a scope to it, right? Mm -hmm. Like, we're literally talking about the foundation upon which New York City and possibly America was built. And because it's Barker, he doesn't give you any more details. He just leaves you with this tantalizing idea. And then he's moved on to the next story. And I, I do love that because it just creeps up on you. I didn't expect it. I thought it was going to be a cat and mouse game on a subway car and i thought well that's fun but you know a, a little bit lightweight for barker and then mm -hmm. here he pulls the rug out under me because of course he knew i was underestimating him and, and again going back to that idea that we discussed during the last episode where we kind of went you know on a deeper dive into the books of blood a lot of these stories do that where yes. he gives you what seems like a very simple premise and then he turns it on its head and turns it into something either very different or much broader, um, but without losing kind of that initial seed of what he started with. Right. Okay. Well, why don't we transition and talk about the film then? Sounds good. So, yes, the film was scheduled for release in 2008 and ended up getting kind of dumped onto DVD in 2009. This is adapted by screenwriter Jeff Bueller, who has gone on to write things like The Prodigy and a couple of other sort of twisty, turny contemporary horror films. And it was directed by Ruhe Kitamura, who I, I was looking through his filmography and I don't know that I've seen a lot of his other movies, but he yeah, me neither. he seemed to be very well respected. Like it's a good get, and also people seem to think he would have no difficulty adapting the kind of blood, gore, viscera action. Yeah, yeah. It's so. Here's where I have to say up top that oh, okay. <laughs> here's the caveat. <laughs> what I've what what this series I think in particular has taught me about myself as a consumer of art mm -hmm. uh, is that I tend to get myself wrapped around the axle, um, and we've heard this you know several times just in this series alone with kind of what I wanted from the Hellraiser reboot or what I might want from the the direction they can take some of these Hellraiser stories. Mm -hmm. I sometimes get wrapped up in what I was hoping for or what it could have been. Um, so for me. In some ways, the, the the film adaptation for Midnight Me Train falls a little short for me because I'm too right. wrapped up in what, what it been? could have been as yeah. a short as a short story. So I'll just say up top, like for me, I think ideally the Midnight Me Train would have been better adapted as a short film. I would have loved to have seen someone just almost do that sequence for Midnight Me Train like in real time. Something mm -hmm. that maybe was like I don't know tops half hour 45 minutes something maybe on the precipice of a feature but right. something more on the side of a, a short story something that could kind of keep that distilled brutal feeling um because you know that's there's just not enough <laughs> and sorry not mm -hmm. enough meat on the bones of the short story to turn into a feature film <laughs> yeah so what we get is a 98 minute feature that is expanded so we get a better sense of who leon is in the film he has a girlfriend oh we should mention uh leon is played by bradley cooper as you suggested he's been beautified up so he's very much a conventional leading man now 
He has a girlfriend, Maya, who is played by Leslie Bibb, and she wants the best of him in this version. He is a photographer who's kind of, he's chasing his dream, but he's afraid to ask for what he wants, and he's not quite good enough to get it naturally. Mm-hmm. So she ends up making the ask of their mutual friend, Jurgis, who was played by Roger Bart, for an introduction to Susan Hoff, who is an art gallery owner played by Brooke Shields in what I think is maybe one of the best performances in the film. Mm, I can see that. It's it's brief. Like, she's not in it a lot, but she's memorable in it. Yeah, like, I, I think because, and, and maybe this is a personal thing, I have certain preconceived notions of what Brooke Shields is going to do in a role. Like, I think of her on the lighter side. I think of her as a bit of a bitch. And she kind mm-hmm. of is here, but she's actually not. Like, she's very straightforward. She will tell you what she's looking for. And if you don't deliver, then you're wasting her time. Mm-hmm. And which oddly oddly enough an odd quirk about her character is that like in terms of wasting her time um she doesn't care about punctuality she's got this whole thing right. about how like for her uh what's, what's her phrase like punctuality is for mediocre people yes i did <laughs> love that line <laughs> so she sees the potential in leon but she doesn't really feel like he's quite there so she sends him out on a mission impress me with three photos by the end of a week and i will consider putting you into this like upcoming exhibition which hypothetically the the film infers that it will make or break his career mm-hmm. so he's interested in the dark side of the city so he's spending a lot of his time down in the subways on the streets and back alleys um it's a little gross if we're being honest he's basically taking pictures of vulnerable people in compromising positions in an effort to kind of play to white people's guilt and privilege. And this is the kind of thing where you're like, oh, okay, this is very 2008, 2009. Yeah, yeah, there's kind of that, you know, icky voyeuristic element to it. Mm -hmm. Um, I do think it's an interesting shift in terms of, you know, there is still that concept of like a person's relationship with the city. Right. Rather than I feel like rather than disillusionment, though, there's more of like for for Leon and the the movie, it's more of an obsession. I think he talks about wanting to find no one's ever captured what the city truly is. Right. You know, and that becomes more and more of an obsession for him over the course of of the movie, Mm -hmm. you know, and maybe a little bit kind of primes him. You know, whereas in the the short story, it seems to be a lot more coincidental in terms right. of Leon taking on the mantle. You get much more of a sense of there's kind of almost like an element of fate to where Leon ends up, which is a similar mm-hmm. spot as in the the short story, which obviously I, I think we'll get to in a little bit more detail. But um, I think that all starts with, yeah, I, I do appreciate that they kept some kind of element of like the city being you know and this is a bit of a uh, a bit of a cliche but like one of the characters of the story um mm-hmm. you know that their the relationship with the city is is front and center it's just a little bit of a different flavor in the movie yeah yeah so what ultimately ends up happening is leon gets one of his really good pictures when he captures uh, a model who's being harassed in the subway by a group of of course racialized thugs and he ends up that happens so much in this movie (laughs) yeah this movie has a bad relationship to race um which again i think is just so it's really the 2000s like 
there's a precipice that happens as we transition into the the kind of mid-ish 2010s where we stop doing this because we realize, oh, we're basically just playing to white people's stereotypes. Mm -hmm. But in this day and age when the film was made, it's like, oh, yeah, we just did this shit all the time. Mm -hmm. So he ends up snapping this random shot of the model getting safely onto a train. She ends up missing and he... He discovers through a process of slight investigation, it, in a way it is very like film noir, Clive Barkery, where he's the photographer who goes on this obsessive mission. He discovers a connection to Vinnie Jones, who is a butcher. He follows him to work and so on. And I think the the fate element that you're that you mentioned is when he follows Mahogany, who is the butcher, into an alleyway. And it's very clear that this man actually knows he's being followed. Mm -hmm. And I think from that moment on, the butcher is now grooming Leon to take his spot. So there's a moment where Leon is more or less led into a trap so that he will see the butcher at work killing people on this subway car, seeing the results of of what he does where he skins the bodies and packages all of their clothes and other items and stuff. But um, Leon ends up getting knocked out, but rather than being killed, he wakes up shirtless and he has now got an insignia drawn and bleeding on his chest. And mm -hmm. we will later discover the butcher has the same mark. And another interesting element to that is, you know, again, we're, we're going from a short story to, feature film so they're they're doing things to kind of build this world out a little bit more mm -hmm. you actually get some time with the butcher uh, who yeah. goes by uh mahogany uh mm -hmm. in in the movie uh played by vinnie jones and you're getting this sense that he's deteriorating yeah and and they're not super clear about whether or not like it's the the same power that lets him mm -hmm. do what he's doing is that also kind of like eating away at him right. uh, are these separate things we're not really sure uh, mm -hmm. but there's some really gross body oh, yeah. horror involved where like you see like these pustules on his chest that he's cutting off it's pretty pretty it's gnarly. gnarly yeah yeah i love that he keeps them too so he's just got yeah. glass jars of these things around his apartment very jeff goldblum in the fly oh yeah hmm I don't think he had the same uh, scientific interest in them, but <laughs> it, no. the, the visual of it reminded me of the same thing. Yeah, there's there's an interesting piece here because in the short story, we do get to spend a little bit of time with this character. So we, we understand a little of his mindset, but it seems as though the calling is a hereditary thing. So he has inherited this mantle of being a butcher who will feed unwilling victims to these creeps and ghouls. Here, mm -hmm. it, it seems like he's been doing this job for quite some time. You know, we, we find documents that suggest he could be as old as 100. And I think part of this is, yeah, we were left to wonder, oh, is his illness something where it's like, because he's lived so long, he's contracted something, or that's a symptom of the fact that he is really old and he's just keeping it at bay. Mm -hmm. I love those little dangling things. We don't really need answers. Yeah. But... Because you could also, like, the other argument is that... Is it him this whole time or is it other people who have right. had that mantle? Like we, sure. we don't know. They don't answer that question, which is, I think, to the film's credit. You know, it, it's keeping with the spirit of the short story where it's hinting at these things, but it's not giving you any uh, concrete answers, which a lot of movies like, you know, the instinct is to explain as much as possible. Mm -hmm. So it is good that they leave kind of some of these threads dangling. Yeah, yeah. 
I, I will say a lot of the rest of it is actually fairly similar. Like we've got these characters in Maya and Jurgis who allow us opportunities to do a bit more sleuthing. You know, Leon kind of loses his mind a little bit. There's a moment where mm. Maya tries to seduce him and he's taking her photo and he's having flashes that seem to suggest there's some kind of voyeuristic connection to the butcher like he can see either through his eyes or he's getting a sense of what it means to take on that mantle it's an interesting thing the film doesn't really develop it as much as i would have liked considering how much time and energy they spend on leon kind of going mad yeah i will say that is an effectively painful scene to watch oh yeah watching him kind of desperately try um, you know, set, set in the scene just a little bit, you know, mm -hmm. at this point, he's pretty deep into this investigation. He's getting he's more obsessive. and more obsessed with yeah. it. Yeah. Um, and it's kind of consuming him. And Maya is obviously concerned. She is trying to kind of snap him out of it. And mm -hmm. kind of in her desperation, she's trying to seduce him or not seduce him, but like kind of remind bring him, him back to her yeah bring him back to her in a way that is very desperate in a way mm -hmm. that is like you know she's grasping at straws and he's trying to like he sees what she's doing and he's trying to uh follow her on that but he just yes. can't yeah. and there's this there's this kind of play with uh, he's almost having like performance issues like like the camera mm -hmm. has erectile dysfunction and he can't yep he can't get it to work. <laughs> and it's just so like it it's so painful to watch because both of these people are just like they're drifting apart and they see it, but they can't do anything about it. And they're both just extremely hurt by it, but there's not really like to use a dub pun again, the train has left the station at this point. So it's <laughs> um you know, there's not much they can do about it. Right. For as desperately as they they want to try and and kind of get back to what they were that's not really possible anymore yeah so what do you think of the fact that maya ends up becoming not just an additional girlfriend to kind of pad out this runtime but she is in a way instrumental in moving the investigation along in in contributing to the plot right because at the end of this the climax is that she ends up getting stuck on a train with the butcher and then of course leon has to he was already planning on confronting him, but now he's got this additional like, oh, my God, my girlfriend, my fiance, the person that I love is on the train as well. So I really have to stop it. In some ways, it feels very Hollywood to me, but mm -hmm. I kind of appreciated that we didn't just introduce Maya so that she could be the girlfriend who stands on the side and says, what's wrong with you? You've changed. <laughs> yeah, it's I'm real conflicted about this because it's okay. to a certain degree. Like, yeah, they give her agency and she's, um, you know, she's part of this investigation. Well, she's doing her own investigation. Yeah. Uh, it kind of becomes this parallel thing. Mm -hmm. But it all kind of just leads up to, like, she, you know, spoiler alert, she winds up dying at the end. She gets her heart cut out, you know, and it's yeah. kind of like the last vestige of Leon's past life. Mm -hmm. to set him up to again another spoiler uh he does in fact at the end of the movie take on mahogany's mantle yeah. and this this seems to be like in the venn diagram of, of of things like there's some overlap for this with like that term fridging mm -hmm. yeah i did think that where you know in in revenge movies or revenge stories where a woman is kind of there to die and then kind of 
basically she is the embodiment of the emotional stakes for the male character. Yeah. And so there's elements of that here for me. But like you said, like she also she gets her own plot. She gets her own right. agency. But it's also like to what degree does this pass like the Bechdel chest because she's doing all of this in service to Leon, you mm-hmm. know? Yeah, it's um, it's challenging because normally when we talk about fridging, it would be kind of an inciting incident, right? Yeah. It would be the thing that sets a man on his journey of revenge or even just like, you know, this is really where I became who I am now. Mm-hmm. My old life is dead. And it is all of that. It's just that it actually happens at the, the very end of the movie. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't know, like, I'm of two minds. I think I like it a bit more than I dislike it because... In some ways, like you said, she has agency, she's contributing to the story. She even has her own investigation, as you said, which is different than what I expected. I really thought she was just going to be hanging around with him. So that was kind of interesting. And then I like that the movie makes you care about her. I mean, it doesn't hurt that it's played by Leslie Bibb. She's a great Mm -hmm. actress. But then to then kill her, it actually hurts more. Mm -hmm. But it also does feel like, oh, okay, well, this is how Leon truly becomes who he is. He's the new butcher now. Yeah, yeah. It's almost like fridging, not for the sake of an inciting incident, but like it's almost fridging for the sake of like hammering home the tragedy of the situation. Yeah, it does play a bit like a twist because, Mm -hmm. you know, we, we still have these ghouls. We still have the fact that we're feeding bodies to these things and also that leon is is going to have to take over it so in some ways it's very similar to the short but because of this added complication of maya the end of the film almost feels like that is where the tragedy is and we're just kind of meant to be like oh and now leon has taken over this like it doesn't have that same sting of tragedy that the short does it's in a different way it's a different flavor yeah because it's in the short story, the tragedy is that he chooses it and that he's kind of in love with this new job, which I right. think would be very interesting to do uh, as the ending of the movie. Here, it's almost like they took everything away from him so that he doesn't really – there's nothing left and he's just right. doing this because, well, what the hell else am I going to do? Yeah. And, and I think the the one other thing that I think wound up being a little more half-baked than in the story and mm-hmm. and not necessarily in a – beneficial way was that they kind of did away with the city father's element to it and basically Mm -hmm. just said that there's these creatures under the subway and we do this as they don't start attacking people during the daytime Mm -hmm. and for me there's an element of like well it's kind of six and one half a dozen of the other like (laughs) like if you're i guess you're doing it in a way that like won't incite panic and won't like i think they say like keep order in the city is a big part of that yes i do feel like it was a little bit of a missed opportunity where you know, you're you're in the realm of a feature film, so you have a little bit more time to sit with a certain concept. Mm-hmm. Like, why get rid of that city father's element? You know, maybe maybe it just doesn't like for the way the rest of the movie went and the divergences they took. Maybe that doesn't really fit as much anymore. You know, mm-hmm. maybe they thought it was like a hat on a hat <laughs> for for like why he would be doing this because they'd already incorporated you know Leslie Bibb and kind of took it more to. That sense of tragedy is why they they were able to kind of like, you know, flip him. And it was always, you know, again, getting that idea of, you know, it was faded. It's kind of been drawn along here. So it's it's more like a natural resolution of what they set up the rest of the way as opposed to, I think, I guess why it works so well in the short story is that it gives some kind of rationale for why he would want to do this. 
Right. Yeah, it's... I think I just talked myself out of why the City Fathers <laughs> element needed to be in there, but it's also, like, I, I like that element to it, so I would have liked to have seen them incorporate it in some way. Yeah, I mean, when we talked about the book, you and I were very much in favor of some of these out-of-this-world kind of cosmic horror or just things that are so much larger than the human experience, right? Particularly mm -hmm. when it comes into a story unexpectedly. It's just, it's really interesting and mm -hmm. Barker's really good at doing it. I'll confess, I didn't even think that the film was going to go down into the subterranean ghoul territory. Like, oh, I certainly didn't expect Leon to actually adopt the mantle. I thought this was going to have a more happy ending. I thought it was just going to be Vinnie Jones as a serial killer on the subway. So I, I was actually surprised that the film kind of goes as hard as it does. Because I think if you don't know anything about the story, this film is way too bleak. It's depressing. It doesn't give you a happy ending. Mm -hmm. And it almost doesn't surprise me that this ended up getting shunted straight to DVD because I can imagine Lionsgate looking at this and saying, we can't market this. It's not going to do well in theaters because it isn't going to give audiences that reassurance at the end of it. So then to even put something like, oh, also there's maybe a cosmic horror or like a vast conspiracy. You know, mm -hmm. they hint at it. They've got this police officer that's working with Vinnie Jones. He's still got the conductor friend who drives the train. Mm -hmm. You know, even the markings, it doesn't really explain, oh, okay, is that a supernatural component? Is there something more to it? So it's dabbling in those little elements. But I think if they had to try to incorporate the founding father piece, it either would have had to take up most of the film or it would have just been really undercooked. And yeah. So in a way, I'm surprised that the film goes this way at all. But also, I can totally see your point because, yeah, as a result, it just kind of feels like, oh, there's like cannibals living under <laughs> New York City and we feed them. Which for as, as simplistic as that is, like if they did go the other direction where it just turned out that Vinnie Jones was just like a serial killer. Mm hmm. I'm just thinking about how kind of empty that would have ultimately right. felt because then it would have been just like Halloween or Friday the 13th. Yeah, we've seen it a billion times. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so the fact that, you know, they, they do incorporate that element, you know, maybe in a little bit more of a broader way. Mm -hmm. But without that element, like it, it completely, I think, loses the spirit of, of what this story is. So I'm very glad that they kept it in, in some way and didn't just have it be, you know, they, they could have gone the route, like, you know, like you said, like they push Vinnie Jones off the side of the, the train and, you mm -hmm. know, they get off and live. But then like the stinger yeah. is that, oh, he's still alive and he's right. doing it. Like that would it's have just been a new slasher. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm glad they didn't try and do that. Yeah. This doesn't seem like a movie that was trying to start like a franchise or anything like that. This was no. telling its own self-contained story and one that's pretty dour. Um, yeah. We were we were talking a little bit about how the saw blue lighting in the uh, yeah. the train sequences, but just in general, like the, the aesthetic of this movie matches the fact that this is just a very overall bleak movie. Yeah, it's a little bit more kind of amber, gold, orange above ground, and mm -hmm. then it's pretty blue saw filter on the train. I ended up appreciating it. I found it a little bit overwhelming initially, like it just seemed like too much. Mm -hmm. And then after a while, I got used to it and it was kind of okay. But uh, yeah, I mean, I think visually speaking, there's 
some things that aren't super great, like you and I were trying to figure out whether this was intended for 3D mm-hmm. when it was maybe still going to go theatrical because there's definitely a couple of sequences of carnage where we just got stuff arbitrarily flying at the camera. And of course, it's 2008 CGI, so it doesn't look super good. Uh, it looks like shit. Just so <laughs> it doesn't look good at all. It looks like Piranha 3D to me. Yeah, That's like, what it looks like. There's a heavy... They lean very heavy on CGI and they it's over the top in a way that, yeah, I think if it was if it wasn't 3D, I'm sure that would get some like oohs and ahs. But also Mm -hmm. this isn't that movie like this isn't that kind of movie. This isn't like a Friday the 13th part three. I I think where where some of that lost me was that it was getting a little too stylistic, Mm. you know, comparing to that to something like. The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, where there's something right. just very visceral and practical and leaves a lot to the imagination. Now, I think they they could have shown more here or shown more than they do in Texas Chainsaw Massacre in this um, mm-hmm. and still had it been effective. But I would have liked to have seen them like maybe pull a few more punches and just concentrate on making certain things a lot more. It gets to a level where, like, all of the splatter, especially it being CGI, it just mm-hmm. becomes over the top in a way that does kind of mirror with director Kitamura's, you know, background. And if we're kind of looking at, uh, you know, some of those Japanese over the top gory movies, you know, you, you get some it's of a bit that. more extreme, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, you, you get some of that same flavor. So I can kind of see where it's coming from. But it almost gets to the point where it, it dilutes itself. Because it's just, it's so much and it's, stuff is happening that is like Vinnie Jones at one point, like you get this whole sequence where it's from the point of view of one of his victims and Mm -hmm. you see him Mm -hmm. like hammer her in the face and then does it one more time and just knocks her head completely off. Yeah, but we stay in her head head. so that we then get to see the body as the blood is spurting out of it. Yeah, it's, I think, actually considered the standout moment of this film. Like, the people who enjoy gore really mm-hmm. like this moment. They think it's a super creative kill. I I will confess, I was a little awestruck by it because it's kind of unexpected. Like, yeah. I really didn't think we were going to do that in this movie. The problem is, is yeah, the, the CGI blood doesn't look so great. And, like, mm-hmm. even the decapitated head, it, I think it's a mixture of practical and CGI, but... It just doesn't have that same visceral effect. This looks yeah. to me very much like studio horror in this day and age. But I'm I'm interested, and I'm going to kick this back to you, because I remember you saying that you thought Vinnie Jones was pretty good in this. And almost as soon as we started to see him on screen, I was like, oh, but by casting him, we've really changed who the butcher is. I do think it works for the final film, but when we're making an adaptation comparison... In the book, the butcher was a really good craftsman. Like, he was an expert with his knife skills. Mm-hmm. Like, that's why he got the job. Yeah. So. I noticed that, too. He's a much messy worker and a much messier movie. He's so messy, but like he's basically <laughs> playing the juggernaut, his character from the X-Men movies, yeah. where he's such a big dude. He's so imposing. I think it works as a villain because you're just like, I'm not going to be able to get away from this guy or fight him. So it's it's kind of fun to watch Bradley Cooper try. And Bradley Cooper's not a small guy either. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But particularly in the scenes where we see him facing off against people like, you know, the Quentin tiny Jackson. model oh, or yeah, yeah. Ted Raimi, you're just like, well, these people are fucking dead because he is huge. Huge. He is lumbering through the subway car. 
and even like the weapon choice, right? Like he's got like a mallet here. Yeah. It makes sense for a butcher, but also it doesn't have the economy that you would expect from somebody who's trying to preserve the meat and the blood for the ghouls, right? Like he's just a killing machine in this movie. Yeah. yeah. Like when, when you're watching him do his work, and again, this is in comparison to the short story, that idea in the short story that he is a, like a perfectionist craftsman. Right. That's not translated here. You know, mm. when you, you see him like, quote unquote, butchering the meat and it just blood's flying everywhere. You yes. know, the, he doesn't have tarps down. Like, no, the meticulousness is lost. And I think that's one of the things that like the way that that conveys like the the lack of humanity that the butcher has in the short mm -hmm. story. You know, he sees this as this is work. This is business. He is, you know, field dressing the meat basically, mm -hmm. you know, and I think that there's something lost by not showing that craftsman's care to what he's doing. Yeah, it's weird because they keep some of it. You know, we see him sealing shoes and belongings into bags and this kind of stuff. But mm -hmm. when it comes to actually taking care of people, he doesn't seem to care how much of a mess he makes. Yeah, exactly. You know, and there is that element of they're going to clean the train out afterwards so he doesn't have to worry about it quite as much. But right. I, I don't know. I really liked... And I feel like they do kind of hint at some of in, – in that opening scene um, where you see a character kind of open his eyes after having fallen asleep. This is like mm -hmm. a cold open basically. Right. I think they're paying homage to the short story because – Oh, very much so. How yeah. that pans out is very similar to how Leon stumbles on this. He falls asleep during his commute. He gets up. You know, he's, he sees he something is blood. off and he slips in <laughs> blood. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so, but then from there, it kind of like goes off and becomes its own thing. Would you say it goes off the rails? <laughs> I mean, I think we have to at this point. <laughs> but yeah, of a lot of the things that I do appreciate that they did to build the world and to make it their own thing, I do think they missed an opportunity by not having that sense of, uh, like you mentioned, craftsmanship to the work that Mahogany does. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is tricky because in some ways I finished the film and I thought that's actually pretty faithful, like more faithful than I thought it was going to be. Mm -hmm. And yet some of the creative liberties really do change the nature of the story and not just, oh, we went from a short story to a feature length film. Like the introduction of Maya and Jurgis really do change a bunch of the story. So like it feels like it's less Leon versus the butcher and more like there's a bit of a ticking clock element to it, mm -hmm. but it feels very much like we're following both Maya to a lesser extent, Jurgis, but then also Leon's off doing his own thing. And even the butcher himself gets a, a couple of scenes to to just sort of be fleshed out independently. Yeah. It's not like these two just forces of nature coming together like it is in mm -hmm. the, the short story, which is funny to describe considering how we talked about how like these are two very unassuming guys. But I think right. that's part of the story's charm is that these unassuming guys just kind of like lose themselves in this feral kind of epic fight to the death. Right. Yeah. I don't know. Like I, I ended up enjoying the film i was trying to think of what it would have been like to experience with no knowledge of the short story and i do think that people would be unhappy with it they would like the gore they might find it stylish they might enjoy bradley cooper versus vinnie jones but i think the ending would actually really leave people cold mm -hmm. it's interesting um you know we read the wikipedia entry on this it it seems like this was clive barker's First sort of cake at the can at coming back to Hollywood after being disillusioned with it for so long following 
uh, Lord of Illusions. <laughs> and, you know, he didn't intend to come back and make movies himself, but he was very much interested in seeing his work adapted by Hollywood again. And he was on record as saying he liked this movie. He was happy with the way it turned out and the things that they did to expand it. And he was apparently very frustrated and disappointed that Lionsgate ended up more or less punting it off onto physical media because this movie made no money. And as a result, it did not kickstart a new wave of Barker adaptations, even though we get a, a couple more, you know, we talked about Books of Blood as mm -hmm. a couple of successive ones, but this could have been the start of something. And instead, it just feels like a, a weird one off. And it was well received. It's got a 72% approval rating uh, with 32 reviews on Rotten Tomatoes. Which is kind of shocking to me, if I'm yeah. being honest. <laughs> I was I was actually very surprised to see that that many people were kind of on board with this. Because like you said, mm -hmm. it is, you know, I mean, hell, we talk about, you know, our favorite movie, Hellraiser. I think that's only got like a, it's also just in the 70s in terms of, you know, some of Barker's best work is still only for certain people. You know, mm -hmm. so we're we've kind of got used to, I think, seeing any of the work that is based off of a Barker property, like the select few that like it jives with are really going to love it. But most people are going to be like, what the hell did I just watch? Um, yeah. So it is interesting to see this Barker adaptation with like extreme Japanese horror aesthetic influences <laughs> um, is is being accepted by, you know, the, the majority of people reviewing it. Uh, just yeah. unfortunately, apparently Lionsgate had absolutely no faith in it. So it just wound right. up getting getting cast aside. Yeah. Yeah. It it does feel like a, a weird oddity and also maybe a missed opportunity, mm -hmm. especially in terms of potentially giving the green light to more of Barker's stuff. Do you think that was a product of when it came out? Like, do you think that, you know, is this something where A24 puts something like this out, you know, in the late 20 teens? Mm -hmm. Does it maybe find an audience better that way? And uh, is it anywhere near the same movie? Like what... What happens if you try and make this 10 years later? Right. Yeah. Because, I mean, at this time, this would have been right at the height of the kind of Saw versus paranormal activity, the winding down of the J-horror subgenre in mm -hmm. North America. So it felt like horror was really in a bit of a transition zone. Like we were, we were starting to do the remakes, like a lot of remakes. So I actually could have seen a potential Hellraiser remake going ahead earlier if this had have done well and we had have started looking at Clyde Barker stuff. Mm. I do think it would have been more of the extreme dimension stuff <laughs> that we were getting. Like it would have been closer to the Texas Chainsaw Massacre remake and mm. some of the other stuff that we were getting. But for me, like the, the visual look of this film is its most time capsule element I think if this were to have been done nowadays, huh? to be honest, I don't think we would have given it to a foreign director. I think we would have kept this firmly in Hollywood hands. Mm. Uh, I don't think we would have gotten any attempt at 3D because that fad has passed. <laughs> I, I would have been interested to see if we would get more of the cosmic horror. I think this would actually be more measured. Like it would be almost more stylistic. We'd give this to someone with a very distinct visual eye. But I don't know if you'd be able to do this ending again. I do think that they would reevaluate that. Unless, yeah, it was A24, in which case they'd probably be fine with it. <laughs> it was A24. They go full into, you get the full City Fathers thing. It's all about the City Fathers. <laughs> There's actually no train. 
<laughs> I mean, I'm, I guess I'm I'm trying to think of uh, like Alex Garland's Men. Mm. This I think would have been a similar kind of visual aesthetic. Like we've got some body horror. It's pretty extreme. A slightly ambiguous ending, but I think it would have been more clean, more sterile, more thematic. Actually, I wonder if you know along the lines of guys who are familiar with Barker properties at this point. Uh, I could almost see Bruckner. David Bruckner mm. directing this if it if it happens you know uh, in 2018 instead of uh, instead of 2008 oh, and, interesting. and something that is yeah definitely going to be a lot I picture that being a lot more measured um, there's definitely like a more deliberate pace to it there's right. more less of a kinetic element to it because that mm-hmm. was that was another thing about this movie it is very it moves and yeah and, it's fast paced and. Also, just in terms of the camera dynamic, like in the mm-hmm. final fight between uh, oh, Leon and, and Mahogany. like It's a music video. <laughs> it's a music video. They're using some CGI trickery to have the camera, quote unquote, like go outside oh my God, the train. In yeah. and out of the train. Give me a break. <laughs> it's It was interesting. I appreciated what they were trying to do. Yeah. But I think that, that for me, it took away a little bit from like the impact of the fight because there's mm-hmm. just too much going on. Yeah, it it felt like it was compensating, like we weren't interested enough in it, so we really had to make this a, a big, loud fight scene. Yeah, exactly. Whereas I I was more on board with the stuff where, you know, at the end of it, we see Maya's body lying on top of this pile of corpses, mm-hmm. and the conductor, who isn't really a character, but kind of is a, a mysterious figure off to the side, just plunges a dagger into her, rips out her heart, and it's like kind of beautifully shot and backlit and just full of potential in terms of like, what is this place? What are we doing here? Who are these things? And yeah. I thought, oh, I think I want a little bit more of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I think that that, that was a little bit more in in tune with kind of what they were trying to convey with the movie as opposed to sometimes I think they were just trying to make stylistic choices for the sake of stylistic choices and didn't necessarily fit with the tone of the movie. Yeah. Like how can we make this visually exciting just because? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, I've seen Kitamura's at least one other film of his, which is Downrange. It's where a group of kids get stranded on a highway and there's a sniper who's perched in a tree and he's basically offing them one by one. And it's very high concept, single location, small cast of characters, but he likes these kinds of visual trickeries. Like he's, he's very much that kind of director. So it makes sense for his oeuvre. I just don't always know that it works in conjunction with some of the storytelling elements. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Admittedly, I haven't seen any of his other stuff, but just within the context of this movie, I would agree with that. Mm -hmm. Cool. 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 Okay. Do you have anything else you want to say about the midnight meat train? Honestly, no, I think we've, we've covered most of it. I do appreciate talking about these kinds of things like it, it, cause it gets me out of my, get off my lawn mentality of like what I thought the movie should have been. Um, Mm -hmm. So being able to have these discussions, it makes me appreciate what it wound up being a lot more. Um, And that's definitely been the case for, for this one, (laughs) you know, being able to really focus on like, okay, we're going to put the short story down at least for a little while until I decide to pick (laughs) it up again. Um, um, And we're going to, you know, see how this works as a movie. So 
it it helps me uh, and my old man brain to kind of look at these within this context. And I think uh, within that context, I think there's a lot of really solid stuff at Midnight Meat Train. Mm-hmm. Yeah, unexpectedly so. I was happy to finally get a, an excuse to cross this off my list as well. I've had this in my DVD pile for, gosh, I think since the days of Blockbuster. So <laughs> I was like, all right, the time has finally come. I shall watch you now. But um, Brian, we, we're not done, but you'll be happy to know we're returning more to the literary world, though not a Barker text. So mm. Coming up next, uh, we're going to be delivering on our promise. We're going to finally check out Paul Kane's Sherlock Holmes and the Servants of Hell. So our mm. Sherlock Holmes meets Hellraiser crossover. I'm so intrigued. The, the crossover you never knew about, the crossover you never knew you wanted. Uh, depending on how this turns out, maybe the crossover that should have never existed. But we're going to we're gonna check it out so either we can say you should have at it or we'll check it out so you don't have to. Yeah. I'm excited and trepidatious. I have <laughs> no idea what to expect for this. Which I'm – yeah. I'm more excited at that. This could either be absolutely amazing or a complete mm-hmm. dumpster fire. Or it could yep. be an entertaining dumpster fire. Like there are so many, <laughs> there are so many opportunities for this. So I'm, I'm very, I'm very excited to see where this is going to go. Hmm. Yeah. So folks, read along with us if you can find a copy, track it down, and that's where we're headed next. But until then, Mr. Brian, if people want to reach out to you to tell you why you're wrong about the stylistic flourishes in the Midnight Meat Train, how would they get a hold of you? On Twitter at Evil Taylor Hicks, uh, come at me now. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll have I'll have my mallet ready and waiting. Jeez, oh, um, okay. but now, <laughs> no, we, by my mallet I mean my ability to have a reasonable and friendly discussion with anybody who wants to anybody who wants to uh, uh, counter any arguments that I've made today. Hmm. Hmm. Yes, and if people want to reach me, you can do so at B Stole My Remote, and that's the letter B. And of course, we'll plug at the podcast network because they do host us. So thanks as always to the Anatomy of a Scream Pod Squad. But uh, yeah, I think that'll wrap it up. Depending on how quickly I edit this, folks, you're either about to go into a new year or you just recently celebrated one. But uh, Hope you're able to relax, enjoy yourself, you know, maybe catch a late night train and not suffer the consequences. Hmm. Who knows? <laughs> yeah, maybe don't fully fall asleep, though. There we go. Yeah, stay awake on the train. It's probably for your best interest anyway. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> but until next time, I guess we will close the book on the midnight meat train and uh, we'll see on the Sherlock Holmes pages. Hmm. squad.